0: Please turn once again to Genesis, the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 38 is where we find ourselves. When we left off in Genesis 37, J- Jacob's son Joseph, it's the story of Jacob's sons on the whole, the last portion of Genesis, and there's particular focus on Joseph. It's an amazing work of God's providence weaving Joseph's life as he does. And in chapter 37, he had been sold by his own brothers into the hands of Midianite traders who then sold him to Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's guard, a special elite force of Pharaoh's, and Potiphar was the captain thereof. And he had a household. He took Joseph there as his slave. And we leave off chapter 37 with Jacob in terrible, terrible ruin as a person. He could not get over the loss of his son. He could not be consoled. So we would expect chapter 38 to be a continuation of Joseph's time in Egypt. But instead, Moses, the inspired writer, has inserted for us what Bruce Waltke famously has said, the most sordid passage in the whole Bible. And we have read some sordid passages, have we not? But this one outdoes all of those. And there's important purpose for this, and I'll recount the purposes for why chapter 38 is in the Bible um, further on in the sermon. But for now, I point your attention to a quote that I put on your insert from Kent Hughes. I think he captures the matter very well. He says, The Judah-Tamar story teaches us that God's purpose is bound up with the growth and development of his people, so that God is always at work in his children's lives, Shaping them to serve His design. This morning, because of the length of the chapter, I'll ask you to have your Bible open to chapter 38, either your hard copy or your device, but be there with me as I walk through the passage. Rather than read it all and then go through it, we'll go through it together. I'll try to make explanation and application as we go. First, let's go to the Lord together and ask him to guide us in the reading of His holy word. Let's pray. O oh Lord. Your Word is truth. You give us the straight truth of all matters that you report in your Word. As we come to this rather ugly display of human depravity, dysfunction, and messiness, please guide our understanding that we might better understand your unfolding plan for redemption. And, oh Lord, we confess that it's better for us to read about this than think about it in our own lives because we all have stuff in the past. May we once again be encouraged by your great salvation that we might be more thoughtful and more devoted in our worship, in our obedience, that we might gain assurance of our own salvation wrought through Jesus, because when it is all said and done, it is all about Christ and your glory. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. While Joseph is the son of Jacob that I would prefer to focus upon, It's Judah, it's Judah through whom the seed of the Messiah will come. The Old Testament has multiple themes that interweave, but the seed of the woman that will come to crush the head of the serpent, this is a major theme. And the continuation of the seed is something that God works, and he does in ways that blows our expectations out of the water. We would expect that Joseph would be the one who takes over for Jacob. But instead, it's Judah. And this chapter serves the purpose of showing us a transformation that happens in Judah. Through some of the worst circumstances of personal choice and practice, we see someone emerge by God's grace that will be used for his redemptive purposes later in the story of Joseph. In fact, Paul says in Romans, speaking in general, but then also with specific application, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The King James Version says it famously, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And praise God for this. Abounding is a word we don't use that much anymore. It means to be very plentiful. It means to be abundant, providing a great crop, a great supply. And sin is in great supply in these opening 24 verses of chapter 38. The closing few verses, though, with just a few inferences and references, we see grace much more abounding. Follow as I read through the passage and explain as we go, a passage that's strange to our ears, so we pay close attention. In verse 1 of chapter 38, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. It happened at that time. What time is this speaking of? This is at the same time that Joseph was sold into slavery, in that same general time frame. It's a period that's 20-plus years from the time he sold, from the time the brothers discover it's Joseph in Egypt. Over 20 years. This is going back while Joseph is in Egypt, much of which we'll read in the weeks to come, And telling us what happened back in Israel and in Canaan when Joseph was there in Egypt. These events start to happen right after Joseph sold. And you'll notice it says that Judah, who is the fourth oldest son, Reuben being the oldest, but was in an illicit relationship with a concubine of his father, so he's essentially ruled out, it seems. It's not said that explicitly, but that's what we gather. And then the next two sons were the ones who led the massacre at Shechem. They seem to be out. Now it's Judah where the focus is placed. Judah went down from his brothers. We could imagine that after they did this awful deed in selling their brother, it was Judah who suggested it. Let's sell him for a profit. But now their father being devastated, they don't want to see him every day in that place of terrible grief that they put him in. And we're keeping him in. So there's a disintegration that happens to the family, a disunity that creeps in. And we don't read into it to see the passage being clear. Judah went down from his brothers. He got away from the covenant community, where all that guilt was between them about what they had done with Joseph. And he turns to an Adulamite, a Canaanite, named Hira. Verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son. She called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. Now Judah... Does what he wasn't supposed to do. Abraham did not want his children to marry into Canaan because of the Canaan practice of gross religious abominations. Isaac likewise did not want Jacob to take a wife and marry from Canaan, especially after Esau did just that. Now, this wasn't a racial matter, as we've said before. This is a matter of spiritual devotion. Canaan was pagan and degenerate in their practices. Everything from human sacrifices to promiscuity in the name of religion in religious temples. Canaan was hardcore, freakish, cult-promoting land. Judah saw and took a certain Canaanite woman, a woman who's not even named, saw and took. Some commentators rightly say this is lust at first sight. He's choosing someone, taking her, she doesn't even get named. And he has three sons through her. Judah's firstborn son, the one who would have the birthright, that would carry on Judah's family line. He dies. It says in verse 6, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, a Canaanite woman marrying his oldest son. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, And the Lord put him to death. Now, we're not told what Earth's specific sin was, that which evoked God's wrath, only that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. It's the first time we have God singling out someone for this punishment. Judah's firstborn son, dead before he could have any children. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, that's strange to our ears for sure, but it was a common practice in the ancient Near East and the ancient Middle East. It was called the Leverite vow, the vow of the brother-in-law. It was a way of perpetuating a family line through the firstborn, even though the firstborn had died with no children. Much was attached to the birthright, to being the firstborn. It was symbolic over the whole household. In this mechanism of the culture... The next son was able to take the widow for his own wife and then bear children who would be in the name of the older son, the older brother. Now in this case, even though that was well practiced in that time, it was even codified by Moses in God's law later. But Onan did not want this situation, but he proceeded to use Tamar anyways. He proceeded to go through as though he was actually doing an honorable thing upholding the family line. Yet, in his case, we see what he does. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. He wanted his own name. He wanted his own inheritance. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. The action by Onan was a dishonoring arrangement. He was dishonoring the whole of the family name. He was dishonoring the seed that was such a precious thing, especially in the family of Judah, given the promises attached. But Onan could care less about this. But he would go ahead as though he was honoring it, using Tamar with no intention of having children through her and perpetuating his older brother's name and family. He was selfish for his own offspring and had no care for her situation. Verse 10, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Onan had no intention of honoring the vow. He could get away with what he was doing over and over again. His sin was at least twofold. He refused to care for his brother's house, though he said he was, or acted as though he was doing it. Also, he used Tamar for his own pleasure. He made a mockery of the sex act, by having relations with no intention to ever provide heirs, to procreate. This shows at least as a cautionary lesson for us how seriously God takes physical relations between people. I know we live in a day that thinks that's archaic. They think that's old-fashioned. That makes no sense. But this union that God has created for family purpose and for many other things, It's meant to happen in a certain arena. When it doesn't, it leads to devastating impact, and we know that's the case today. We see when people take it so lightly, when they give of themselves in this way, but God sees this as very serious, especially in this case, when such an outward display was being shown, manifested. Onan's gross disrespect for the importance of the family line was reprehensible, and his mistreatment of Tamar was dishonoring and mean. He misused the marital union. It's an affront to God's created order. His actions provoked God's wrath like his older brother, and God's judgment came upon him. Now, what would you think if you're Judah at this point? You have three sons. The first one is struck dead for his wickedness and leaves Tamar a widow. The second son takes Tamar, but he then is also struck dead. Now, we're given insight as to why these two were struck dead. We don't know that Judah understood this completely. Everyone has an appointed time to die. But these are specific reasons given by God that we understand. In this case, it was for specific sin. But Judah may not know this. All he knows is there are two sons of his. There's only one left. And the two that have married Tamar have died prematurely. He has no intention of giving Shelah to Tamar, but he lies anyways about it. He wants to act as though he's keeping with the Leverite marriage arrangement. says in verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. Then we have this divine commentary from Moses, for he feared that he would die like his brother's. So he's saying to her, go back to your father and we'll get back to you when Sheila's old enough but he has no intentions. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Appreciate the position Tamar is in. She has no legal recourse. She's in a terrible place in that day and time. She goes back to her father's with a certain amount of shame by no fault of her own. But here she is victimized in this way and Judah has no intention of making good in releasing her from this. Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So Judah is now a widower himself. When Judah was comforted, this means after he's had a time of grief, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his old friend Hira the Adulamite, we remember him already. Now there's a lot packed in this verse that we shouldn't miss. A widower himself, over the grief of the loss of his wife, now he's ready to go have a good time. You say, well, how's that true of the sheep shear event? Well, this would be once or twice a year. They would take their sheep to a central location, people would from all around, and they would have those sheep shorn and the wool collected. So he takes his flocks up there, and there's hundreds of head, and all sorts of other people do the same. When they get there, there's a bit of a party, like a, a Mardi Gras Oktoberfest type thing going on where this is happening and the men are around and there's all sorts of illicit things that happen. There's drunkenness, there's partying, all sorts of things that occur. There's even temple prostitutes that would act as part of a fertility act to appease the Canaanite gods to get more flocks. All these things happen in the name of the Canaanite culture and religion. And people knew what it meant when it was time to go to sheep sheep shearing. That's what's happening here. He understands that he's going and he finds his buddy, Hira, It says in verse 13, "'When Tamar was told, "'Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, "'she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, "'wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Aneum, "'which is on the road to Timnah. "'For she saw that Shelah was grown up, "'and she had not been given to him in marriage.' She could see there was no intention on the part of Judah to make good on his promise, and she was stuck in this place of widowed mourning. Desperate for resolution for her situation, she acts in a very cunning way. Yes, a sinful way, but clearly forced into this by Judah's greater sin. In desperation, she hatches a very daring plan. She knows the kind of man that Judah is. She disguises herself as a prostitute and situates herself so that Judah will necessarily come across her. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, "'Come, let me come into you,' for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, "'What will you give me that you may come into me?' He answered, "'I will send you a young goat from the flock.'" And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he doesn't have payment with him, he's going to give a young goat. This is hundreds of dollars, a high price to pay for a prostitute. But Judah's fleshly weakness leads him to stupidity, bad judgment, lack of self-control, which is the case for these kinds of sensualities and sensual sins when we become slaves to them. You don't think any longer and you need it now. She actually has full control over this situation, as he has none, no self-control. She demands a pledge because he doesn't have payment with him. He then says, what pledge shall I give you? She replies, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Now, these things would be tantamount to you handing your license and your debit card, maybe even your phone. It's a crazy thing to give to somebody in any case, let alone in this situation. But he's taken by his sensual lust. He gave them to her It went into her. Now, I want you to think of this signet and a cord. What this is is a family symbol, maybe a family shield. It could be very personalized. It would be on a precious stone carved into it maybe a piece of metal, and it would be on a cord that you wrapped around your neck. It would identify you. You'd use it in business transactions. It could even be used to make an imprint. The staff would be something that any shepherd, and all these guys are shepherds from way back, would have carved themselves or produced themselves over the years. And it, too, would be a bit of a personal identifier. And he just readily gives them to her as a pledge. The act is consummated, and she conceives a child by him at that moment. Verse 19, then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood, back to her life in her father's house. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Edulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. Judah doesn't do it himself, he just wants to secretly, hopefully, Make his internet payment that nobody can see. Verse 21, and he asked the men of the place, Where's the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. He can't find her. So he goes back to Judah, verse 22, and says, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. Judah thinks about this. This isn't a good situation. He's just lost very valuable stuff. Someone will notice it, but we've just got to get past this. We've got to brush this off. Let her keep the things as her own, or we'll be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. We tried. We tried. Let's not push this any longer. We're going to get mocked if people find out what just happened here. Let's just do away with this. If we just ignore it, nobody's going to find out. Judah had to be worried about his situation initially, but he had become hardened, and he was able to live his life knowing what he did with Joseph. So here's just another thing in his past that he won't acknowledge. He moves on because he knows if he presses the issue, it would only bring it to the forefront, so he tries to put it off out of his mind. Certainly, nobody, nobody will find my internet history. About three months later, verse 24, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. What's Judah's response? Judah said, "Bring her out and burn her." Bring her out, let her be burned." What a heartless response from a hypocrite like Judah. It's like he jumped at the chance to get rid of Tamar get her out of association with his family name. Now we don't have to worry about her. We don't owe her anything. Total lack of mercy is outstanding. It's pretty shocking. You know, he could have just said, and this would have probably been fine, and there's many mechanisms of the, the law and the culture in these days. It would have been fine by people around if he burned her. But he could have said, knowing what he knew, okay, this ends my obligation to her, just ignore her going forward. But that's not what he says. He says, let's take her out and burn her. By the way, whenever us fellow sinners react to other people's sin like that this may be extreme but it's similar oh I can't believe they are sinners like this as if I don't have all this sin I know about but the suspense of the scene builds because now this poor woman is going to be brought out dragged out and burned it's like as she's walking to the guillotine almost verse 25 as she was being brought out in the process she sent word to her father-in-law. So you can see in her hand, maybe wrapped around her hand is the cord with the signet and she has her staff as they're pulling her and she wants to make sure that someone knows her father-in-law would be the male authority. Yes, her father's house, but given what she was waiting for. So it makes sense she would appeal to Judah. Hey, before you burn me, I want someone to And Judah be the guy, he's the guy she should appeal to with these things. She was brought out and sent word to her father-in-law by the man whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are the signet and the cord and the staff. Now, it's not to say that everyone else really knew. The cord could be pretty secret most of the time for somebody. Lots of staffs around. To this point, would you agree that sin has been abounding? It's been increasing. Just when you think it couldn't get worse, it gets worse. Sin has been abounding and snowballing. And so often, this is how it goes. This is Paul's sentiment when he says where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. For the first time now, in verse 26, we catch a glimpse of the work of God having its effect on Judah. The first time we see a twinge of conscience in Judah. For the first time, there's an inkling of change in this heartless person. Verse 26, Judah sees it. He recognizes it. He could have said, you stole that. Why did you take that from me? You're framing me. Who's going to believe Tamar? But verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Sheila. He knew exactly what this meant. He forced her into doing this. He pressed her to do this and how unrighteous he is for doing it and how she was trying to gain what was rightfully hers, even for the perpetuation of the family. Not only does it say that he recognizes this and calls himself out on it, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Sheila and he did not know her again. By rights, he could have married her but he's so taken back by all that has happened, it's come upon him and he realizes it and he does not treat her this way again. We have in verses 27 to the end almost a near repeat of the birth of Jacob and Esau. You'll remember from Genesis 24. It's yet another show of God's surprising, electing grace that doesn't make immediate sense to us. It doesn't follow the conventions we would write if we were writing the story. But it shows that God is sovereign over all these things. Verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first to identify This is very important, right? Birthright. But is he really out yet? Just the hand. But as he drew his hand back, behold, the brother came out. And she said, What breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah, which means seed. Now, there are several purposes for Moses, including Genesis 38 in the Bible. First, it is historic truth. If the Bible was a made-up fake book, someone would write a mythology with a bunch of heroes. There is a hero, but it's God himself and his son Jesus Christ. Everyone else is human, just like you and I. He's telling the whole truth. These things happen. The second reason Moses includes this, it's intended to show how disconnected Jacob's sons had become in the aftermath of their selling Joseph and hurting their father so badly. They were going to lose their identity if things kept going like they were going. But the Joseph story brings us to Egypt, which actually is the thing that God uses to safeguard Israel's identity because if left to them, they all would have went the way of Judah, and they would have intermixed and intermarried and there'd be no identity of the covenant people. We are seeing how this starts to unravel in chapter 38 to better appreciate what God does in 39 through 50. Third, another reason why this is included is it sets us up for Joseph's experience. This puts Judah's fleshly unfaithfulness up against Joseph's self control that God provides it sheds a light on the traits of Joseph that will come in the very next chapter. In the very way that Judah sought to sin, Joseph resists that sin, so we're able to see God's work. And be reminded that, nevertheless, it's Judah that God brings the Messiah through. It's Joseph who God uses to save the seed. An unworthy seed, at least from Judah's perspective. There's a fourth reason that This chapter is included in the Bible. This shows, manifests the grace of God to Tamar, a Canaanite woman who is brought into the line of the Messiah. He does not discard her because of what she's been through, nor does he discard any of you based on what you have been through. And Tamar is a reminder of this. Tamar, not Sarah. It's Tamar, not Rachel or Rebekah. It's Tamar who's the first woman mentioned in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. The longest statement made in the long genealogy of Matthew is about Judah and Tamar. And her children. When you look at the genealogy laid out by the gospel writers, you have five women mentioned Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. All of them, although not guilty of that themselves in every case, they were accused of, or there was some cloud around them, and God is not hindered by those clouds, by that backstory, by their baggage by the stuff in their closet. Not hindered at all when he shows his gracious redemption. He utilizes broken people like this to manifest his great grace. And he starts with Tamar. There's a fifth reason why this passage is in the Bible. And it goes back to the Hughes quote that I started with. But I'll extrapolate a little further. The reader of the Bible will remember that the seed... The seed who will be the Messiah is the chief focus and the buildup in the Old Testament through the book of Genesis, and through the Old, Old Testament for that matter. And we are reminded here that the seed will not come from Joseph, but from Judah. So there's focus here. So this passage shows a subtle change in Judah that God is working, that he wants us to know as backdrop for what will happen later in Joseph's life and what will happen later in the history of God's unfolding plan of redemption. Judah goes from a position of selfish, heartless hedonism to an act of intervention that will then happen later in life with Joseph again. We see Judah go from degeneracy to a certain amount of advocacy that's selfless, something he'd never practiced before. Judah is a deceptive, degenerate man here. But when we meet Judah again, he is definitely different. Eventually, Joseph will, will mess with his brothers a bit. They don't know it's him, and he will demand that they send Benjamin, who he'd not had a chance to get to know, because they sold him out. So he wants to see Benjamin. He doesn't going to do him harm, but they don't know it, and certainly Jacob doesn't know it, and Jacob doesn't ever want to give another son but he realizes the famines come and they need what Egypt has. So it's Judah of all the brothers, only Judah. He steps up and guarantees Benjamin's safety to Jacob. He says to his father in Genesis 43, "'Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go. "'I will be a pledge of his safety. "'From my hand you shall require him. "'If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, "'then let me bear the blame forever.'" He's actually thinking of the future and the blame, that and it's on him now. That's a different Judah. God's moved these things together to this point. Then once they're in Egypt, Judah acts as the spokesman for his family, not the older brothers. When Benjamin is falsely accused of stealing a, a cup from Joseph's household, all set up by Joseph to reveal this plan, Judah again offers himself is the ransom for his brother's life. It's not empty words to say this in Egypt. At the end of Jacob's life, Judah declares, or Jacob declares, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey you have gone up. Jacob also says to his son, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Judah, through Tamar, by God's gracious providence, becomes the tribe of Judah. From the tribe of Judah, Israel is whittled away and is down to just two tribes left. It's Judah that is the new name for Israel. They're known as Judah, the nation. And from that tribe will come the Messiah. In Revelation chapter 5, this great picture of the Lamb who can take away our sins. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open up the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Who would be our advocate? Who could step in the gap? Who could stop God's wrath upon us? John says, I began to weep loudly because there was no one found to open, no one that was worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Again, the Judah-Tamar story teaches us That God's purpose is bound up with the growth and development of his people. That includes Judah, and that includes you and me. So that God is always at work in his children's lives, shaping them to serve his design. Though sin may have abounded in your life, maybe you find it's abounding now. Where that sin abounds, God's grace can be found more abounding. No person, not a one of you, not a one of us, is beyond God's hope beyond God's reach. He rather fancies himself to take that which everybody else would count out and make it into something, make us into someone for his glory. Through Judah's descendant, his ultimate descendant, mankind has the promise of salvation and everlasting life in him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, where sin increased, your grace increased all the more. Your grace is marvelous. Your grace exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yes, it's true. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. But alas, there is something that can avail to wash that stain away. There is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow we may be washed today. O Lord, comfort all today who confess their sins and rest in Christ. Pray this in his name. Amen.